attitudes of church growth. So far we have looked at an attitude of expectancy where we found in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus has instructed his disciples to wait for him in Jerusalem where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would come. And while they weren't certain what the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would mean, there was undoubtedly a great sense of expectancy that God was going to do something absolutely incredible. And so on the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where the disciples were speaking of the mighty deeds of God in virtually every known language and languages that they themselves did not know, had not learned, it was indeed truly incredible what the Spirit enabled them to do when He came to fill them and to live within them. We looked in Acts chapter 2 where Peter preached his very first sermon and 3,000 people were immediately saved and the impact of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit was immediately realized in the lives of the disciples. We looked last week in an attitude of fellowship where this new group that had just grown exponentially were united together by building spiritual relationships that were centered in and based upon discipleship and prayer. We read this in Acts 2, verses 44 and 45. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. The disciples had never ever seen anything like this, not even in the days of Jesus' own earthly ministry, the reality is that the coming of the Holy Spirit has changed absolutely everything. Now this morning we're going to look at an attitude of courage. And as we look at an attitude of courage, we should be challenged as we consider our willingness to do what God has called us to do, our faith that God will provide and protect as we serve Him, And that God is able to do in us and through us what can only be explained by Him. Now, as we talk about courage, from a human perspective, courage is bravery in the face of danger. The willingness to risk our own safety for the well-being of someone or something else. Assuredly, we have heard of these acts of bravery where policemen or firefighters or members of the military risk their very lives. In fact, some will give up their very lives in order to save someone else. From a spiritual perspective, courage is a commitment to stand for God, to speak for God in a hostile and in an unwelcomed environment. To have courage for God means to stand against the world regardless of the threat of consequences. In this world, we will always have the tension between fear and faith. Proverbs 29.25 says this, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Fear is typically driven by what we think might happen to us at the hands of of the unbelieving world. Now, to underscore this reality, and to underscore our ability to have confidence in this God that we know, is it a surprise to you that there are over 350 fear knots in the Bible? Over 350 times, the Bible says, do not be afraid, fear not. 
in some form or fashion. These instructions to not fear, the examples of biblical characters who trusted God, are challenges and examples to us to have faith, to have confidence in our God who calls us His own. God is not just some distant divine entity. He has communicated Himself to us in a relationship, calling Himself our Father, and He calls us His children. We are His own, and our willingness to follow and to have faith and to not give in to fear is an indication that we have confidence in this God who has called us our own. His own. After the events of Acts chapter 2, we find in Acts chapter 3 that Peter and John have healed a lame man. This man is about 40 years old. And after this, Peter is preaching his second sermon. And he is proclaiming Jesus as the suffering servant, the one who is truly responsible for this man's healing. And he is preaching Jesus as the resurrected Messiah that Israel has long awaited for. Now, Acts chapter 4, where we're going to spend our time today, records for us the response to Peter and John as a result of this healing and of the subsequent teaching that took place. Now, because of the length of this, we're going to read this in individual sections. We'll have four major points that you can follow along with in your sermon notes inside your bulletin. Now, number one in our outline, we're going to see the danger. There is danger in the first century Christian world that you and I know nothing about. This great country was birthed on the premise of religious freedom, religious liberty, and our founding fathers came over as believers who wanted to express their love and faith in God and the way that they saw fit without any outside influence And so we know nothing of the danger that existed. In first century Christianity, we know nothing of the danger that exists in many parts of the world. In fact, there are many, many parts of the world where it is illegal to be a Christian. It is illegal to bring a Bible. It is illegal to meet for church. And yet, against our expectations, it is in these areas that Christianity is growing the fastest. Here in our own protected religious liberty bubble, which is getting popped, by the way, we know very little about this danger, but there is danger. First off, we see the opposition that the disciples are going to face in their ministry. Verses 1 through 4 give us this experience of danger and opposition. So continue verses 1 through 4. As they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. 
So here Peter and John have healed a lame man, and it has prompted them to preach about the resurrected Jesus to the crowd of people that have come to see and experience for themselves the miracle that had taken place. Now the Sadducees is one small group of the religious leadership. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were offended by that teaching. And so they took it upon themselves to call the captain of the temple guard and had these men thrown into jail. We should know that there is always going to be opposition to Christianity and to the gospel message. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus told the disciples was going to happen. This was an intentional part of Jesus' preparation for his disciples. In John 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said this, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. In spite of what Jesus has warned his disciples about, what he has prepared them for, what we ourselves have studied in the last several weeks, we seem to be caught off guard when the gospel message, Jesus the resurrected Messiah, is not welcomed with open arms in a hostile and in an unwelcomed environment. While we may not be put into jail for our ministry efforts, nonetheless, we still fear the opposition of man and what they might do to us. In the absence of this imminent physical threat that we see here in Acts chapter 4, we don't fear the loss of freedom, but what we do fear is this need to protect our pride, our need for acceptance, and our desire for status in this hostile world. I know that there are men and women who have not spoken about Jesus in the work sector, in the community, around the ballparks, because they want to be accepted, they want to climb to some form of worldly status, and they don't want to risk anybody whispering or snickering behind their backs that that guy is a religious fanatic. I don't know where he came from. I don't think I want to hang around him very long. And yet the unbelieving world will think those things about us, and it will stop us cold from sharing the gospel or vocally living out our faith in Jesus Christ. What should we care if the unbelieving world doesn't applaud us or clap us on the back because we're taking a stand for Christ? You know, in the last 60-some years, this nation which was once founded upon Christian principles is slowly and systematically being stripped of its religious heritage. It started with such a little thing where an atheist family said, I don't think my child should be expected to submit himself to prayer in school. And so what happened? Prayer was removed from school. 
The Bible was no longer allowed to be read in school. Teachers were not allowed to bring their Bibles into the classroom and present it to their students. It's gone so far as to legally challenge the validity of a Christian club, which loses every time. We are systematically having our religious heritage stripped away from us because Christians are unwilling to vocally speak publicly about this God that is our everything. Shh! You may not get to be invited into the leadership group of the PTA. You might not get asked to chair the social hubbub that's going to come at the end of the year. Well, that's really what I want to do. I don't want to miss out on that. I'll get to rub shoulders with the elite of the elite. Why do we care? We would rather sacrifice the integrity of who God is in our lives so that the lost and unbelieving world might think more highly of us. This fear of being accepted, this desire for status, usually is enough for us to back down when we're challenged or to remain silent and not Stir the water. Well, in spite of Peter and John being hauled off to jail, Luke tells us that more people believed in their message and it came and came to faith in Jesus, a total of about 5,000 men. So the 3,000 that were saved just a couple of days earlier have now, had a few, have now had a few thousand more added to their midst, and the church continues to grow exponentially, even though its most vocal leadership has just been hauled off to jail. So now we see their authority challenged. We'll look at verses 5 through 7 as they are now challenged the very next day. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there. And Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? So after having spent the night in jail, my assumption would be that the religious leadership would think that these men have probably come to their senses, and now they have assembled themselves in what would be widely understood as a formal hearing where the Sanhedrin has now gathered with this who's who of religious leadership and the high priest that is mentioned here, Annas, who is the current high priest, his father-in-law, Caiaphas, John, who is thought to be the child of Caiaphas, Alexander, who they aren't sure who that really is, but Luke says that he's of this high priestly descent. So, by the way, these are the same men which some two months earlier hauled Jesus into these religious trials and then hauled him into his civil trials and then brought about his unjust execution. It's the same group of people that Peter and John are now sitting before. There's no doubt that the disciples know exactly who these guys are and what they're capable of. And so now in this veritable who's who of religious leadership with the eyes of the Sanhedrin, the religious council of the nation, the 71 sets of eyes glaring down upon them. They questioned their authority in healing this man. And it was the same questioning of authority that Jesus was subjected to. 
So since the Jewish council of the, of the Israeli nation had not authorized Peter and John to heal and to teach, Peter and John are considered to be rebels just as Jesus was considered to be a rebel. So now they're front and center. They're undergoing intense scrutiny with life and liberty on the line. Number two in our outline, we see the courage. Verse 8a. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now this is very, very important what it says here. Courage is found in the Holy Spirit. Now you'll notice here what it says in verse 8 is that Peter was not suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit, but Peter had already been filled on the day of Pentecost. And here he is, standing before the religious council of the nation of Israel, and his being filled with the Holy Spirit is bringing him courage. This being filled with the Spirit is his new spiritual state of being. And by the way, it is the exact same state of being that you and I share today. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit at the moment of our salvation. To be filled doesn't mean to get more of the Spirit. We already have Him, and we have already been filled with Him. We have all of Him. But here's the question. Does He have all of us? You see, He had all of Peter. And because all of Peter belonged to the Holy Spirit... Peter was able to stand before this religious leadership and exhibit spiritual courage in the Lord. Now, when the Holy Spirit does not have all of us, then we don't live in His power that He provides even though we have been filled. It is within the power of the individual. Listen to this. It is within the power of the individual to allow himself to be taken over by the Holy Spirit. The principle of this is explained for us in Ephesians 5.18. Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That be filled is in a perfect, continuous tense, which means be being filled. Keep on being filled. Even though you were filled at salvation, you need to continually be filled by allowing the Holy Spirit to overpower you. And you do that by giving yourself to Him. Just as an individual gets drunk and is under the influence and the control of alcohol, we are to be under the influence and the control of the Holy Spirit who fills us by willingly submitting ourselves to His position and His purposes in our life. What we, excuse me, what will we be filled with? Excuse me. We will be filled with the Spirit to the extent that we allow God to have control over our lives, and this control is primarily expressed through obedience. It is God, I am here to serve you. It is God, my desire is to obey you. 
It is God. It is my desire that you control my life. And folks, when we live our lives that way, not a Hail Mary prayer when we're busting out the door because we're late, but when we are before the Lord, recognizing who He is, expressing a desire to be ple- to live a life pleasing to Him, then we give to Him control over our lives. God leaves a decision up to us. How filled with the Holy Spirit do we really want to be? Do we want to be controlled by Him in such a way that it is not I who live my life, but it is He who lives His life through me? The more I allow God into my life, And the more I take myself out of my life, the more filled with the Holy Spirit my life becomes, and the more courageous I will become in my witness. This filling provides us the courage to stand against the opposition. Number one, courage to speak for God. Now, Peter and John are standing before this religious council of the nation of Israel, the most powerful religious entities in in their world. And Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, has the courage to speak for God. Verse B, excuse me, 8B. He said to them, rulers and elders of the people. My friend, that is a pronouncement. That is... May I have your undivided attention, please. Because what I am about to say is of the utmost importance. Instead of backing down and instead of cowering in fear, Peter stands firm and speaks as the Holy Spirit leads him. He didn't mumble under his breath. He said, well, you know, this Jesus thing that we were caught up in and, you know, kind of went away we didn't expect and, you know, we're just trying to do the best we can to get by, you know, you you understand? Rulers and elders of the people. Now, just two months ago, what did Peter do? You see, when the disciples were arrested, excuse me, when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples scattered like cats because they were afraid of what this same religious leadership entity would possibly do to them. They saw Jesus get hauled off to religious court. They heard the trial that was being brought against Him. They saw Him go before Pontius Pilate. They watched in horror as Jesus was nailed to the cross. And they watched in disbelief as His lifeless body was put into the tomb, but they saw the resurrected Jesus. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit, and rather than scattering like a cat in the midst of the scrutiny of this religious leadership group, he very simply stands and addresses them as professionally and as clearly as he could. Rather than re-engaging in self-preservation mode, Peter has drawn a line in the sand and saying, I got the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to stand before you, and I am going to give an account of what it is that has just happened. So this appearance before the Sanhedrin is exactly what Jesus told them was going to happen. Take a look at what it says here in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. When Jesus speaking, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, 
Do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you that very hour what you ought to say. Isn't that amazing? Peter didn't cram all night wondering what might happen. He didn't sit down and write out this very articulated argument. He was just doing what God had told him to do. And as he stood before this group of people, instantly the Holy Spirit gave him exactly what it was he was supposed to say. Peter has the, scour- has the courage to speak Not only to speak for God, but to speak in Jesus' name. Now this is an important distinction. Look at what it says here in verse 9 and 10. If we are on trial today, Peter speaking, for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to you, excuse me, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Peter does not sugarcoat this message one iota. He professes that the healing has come in the name of Jesus, the same Jesus that you guys had crucified. Not the Romans, not some mysterious power or being, but you, you put Him on the cross, and God raised Him from the dead. It is by this name, the name of Jesus, that this man has been healed. It's not me. It's not me and Him. It's God in me doing what He desires to do. Speaking about Jesus is central to speaking for God. Speaking about God generically is not enough. Why? Because there are far too many misconceptions about who God is and how man can become acceptable to Him. You know, there's a large segment of our, of our population that claims to be spiritual. What does that mean? Well, they believe in a God. Okay. Well, the demons believe in God. What does that mean? They believe that there's some spirit force out there in the trees, in the rocks, in the animals, in the wind. Where is this spirit being? You see, it's not enough to speak about God generically. It is to speak about the name of Jesus. The layman was healed by Jesus through Peter and John who were simply His instruments to do with whatever He wanted. They had submitted themselves to the authority of the Holy Spirit. He is speaking through them and He has healed this man through them. Today we can become enamored with names because names can often be associated with power and authority and influence. And have you heard about name dropping? If you're someone who says, well, I know so-and-so. Ooh, you know so-and-so. You must be special. I ought to get to know you because I might get to know so-and-so because you're in the group. There's names like that within our world that elicit this idea of power and authority and influence. For example, the name the Kennedys. Well, the Kennedys are political royalty in the United States. If you're associated with a Kennedy, ooh, you must be really something. You probably have a a, a public office, right? We ought to vote for you because you're a Kennedy. How about the House of Saud, the royal family of Saudi Arabia, who has more money than you could probably burn in a month? 
How about the House of Windsor, the royal family of the United Kingdom? You know, there are so many people in the United States that have a fascination with the royal family of the United Kingdom. Listen to this. Prince Charles is the heir apparent to the throne of England. Of course, that assumes that Queen Elizabeth is going to die in some year. I mean, she's like 92 and he's 72 and she just keeps going. But listen to this. Prince Charles, his full name is Charles Philip Arthur George of the House of Windsor. His titles are His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, Knight of the Garter, Knight Order of the Thistle, Earl of Chester, Duke of Cornwall, and Duke of Rothsay, Earl of Carrick, and Baron Refru, Lord of the Isles, and Great Steward of Scotland, personal aide de camp to the Queen, Great Master of the Royal Bath. And this doesn't even begin to address the military titles that he holds because of his military service in the British and the Canadian Armed Service. And as impressive as this list of names and titles is, it doesn't compare to the name that is above every name, to Jesus the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and Omega, the Bright and Morning Star, the Chosen of God, the Door, the Bread of Life, the Great Shepherd, the Way and the Truth, the Holy One, the Great I Am, the Son of God, the Son of Man, your Savior. He has the name that is above every name and you and I ought to have the courage to speak in Jesus' name because we belong to Him. Number three, we ought to have the courage to speak on Jesus' authority. Now this is built into the name of Jesus, but there is a distinction here. Verses 11-12, Peter still preaching, to the Sanhedrin, he, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You see, Jesus has all authority. The stone is a reference to the position that Jesus has as the Messiah of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is the builders that are to build upon the chief cornerstone who is Jesus, but they rejected Him. And they hung Him on a cross. His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His exaltation make Him the chief cornerstone, the foundational piece of Judaism, the foundational piece of Christianity, and the only way to enter into a relationship with God the Father. He has all authority. His name is above every other name because salvation is found in Him alone. You see, when you're engaging the secular world, when you're talking about spiritual things, it isn't enough to talk about God generically. We have to talk about God the Father who sent His one and only Son to die on the cross in our place who will fill us and seal us with the Holy Spirit and will enable us to spend an eternity with Him. That's what people need to hear about. And this is exactly what Jesus is proclaiming to the Sanhedrin. 
His authority, His position, our union with Him provides us with the authority to speak in His name and proclaim the truth about who He is and about what He has done. His name gives us the authority to do that and He has given that authority to the church. Listen to what it says here in Matthew 16, verses 15-19. through Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Here it is. I say, I also say to you that you are Peter, the name change, and upon this rock, your profession of faith, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Through the proclamation of the gospel message, because of our union with Him, Christ has given us the authority to confidently stand underneath the gospel message to preach in His name under His authority. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 and 20. Jesus came and spoke and said, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of of the age. This is exactly what Peter is doing. He is proclaiming the truth of the gospel message in Jerusalem to the most powerful religious group he knows anything about. And he's doing so under the authority of Jesus who has given it to them. Peter and John stand and speak under the authority of Christ and we do too. Absolutely nothing has changed. Now, very quickly, we're going to walk through the conclusion of this narrative. And number three, we're going to look at the response. Verse 13, we see the response, first of all, as amazement. They have heard what Peter has had to say. Verse 13 says, now they observe the confidence, the courage of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, not rabbis, not elders, not scribes, fishermen, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. You know, I believe this with all my heart. When I share the gospel with somebody, they say, well, you're a pastor, I expect you to do that. When somebody who's not a pastor shares the gospel message, they say, well, you must be pretty serious about that. Yeah, I am. Let me tell you more. You see, there's such validity to the non-clergy of the world sharing the truth of the gospel message because it adds a measure of validation that the world out there needs to see. They recognize that these courageous, uneducated fishermen had been with Jesus And they were amazed at what it was they heard. This was not the response they expected. Peter and John had successfully defended their actions and it left the leaders 
amazed. I would imagine that the leaders thought they were going to apologize, that they were going to beg forgiveness, that they were going to make all kinds of promises, but they didn't do that. They stood courageously and they shared the truth. Second response we see here is silence. This again, the religious leaders, verse 14. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. Just like in the miracles that Jesus performed, they could not refute the legitimacy of it. They could not say this is, a, this is a fabrication. They could not say this is witchcraft. They could not say this is a dupe. All they could say is, you guys are commoners. We can't believe you're saying what you're saying. We see what you've done, and we don't have a response. I heard Carol say this last week in our second hour Bible study. Nobody, nobody can refute your testimony. Nobody. Your testimony is your own little miracle of how this great God saved a wretch like you. They can't tell you that it isn't real. They can't tell you that it isn't true. They can't tell you that it didn't meet the the deepest need of your soul. Your little miracle cannot be refuted by the world who hears it and sees it. Clearly, Jesus being gone hasn't changed anything. The religious leaders are beginning to see more of the same. And there's a fear that they have that they can't risk allowing Peter and John to continue. The third response we see here is intimidation. Verses 15 through 18. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they dismissed them privately for a moment. They began to confer with one another. Now they're talking amongst themselves. Saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name, the name of Jesus. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all, in the name of Jesus. So they assumed that their command to stop doing these things would be sufficient. After all, they'd spent a night in jail. I don't know a lot about jail. I know it's not very fun. I know there's a lot of better places to be. And I know most people don't want to go back if they've been there before. So perhaps that's what the religious leaders were counting on. They've been in jail. They've learned their lesson. Even though there's some boldness being expressed here, we'll warn them and perhaps they'll go on their way. Well, the people had seen the miracle, they knew of its validity, and they could not do anything against Peter and John that would lead to a potential upheaval, which which they could not allow. The same reasons that they didn't arrest Jesus publicly, they weren't going to do anything else to Peter and John publicly because they feared what was going to happen to the people. Now, number four in our response shifts from the religious leaders to Peter. Verses 19 and 20. Peter and John answered and said to them, whatever it is, excuse me, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Basically what they said is, thanks but no thanks, we're not changing anything, we're going to do what God has called us to do, and if you don't believe it's the right thing to do, that's between you and God. But as for us, we're going to stay the course. We're going to obey, we are going to be faithful to what God has told us to do. So, this is our question today. Who is it that we're going to listen to? To what authority are we going to submit ourselves to? God? 
or something or someone else. You see, there's really only two choices. We're going to submit to the authority of God or we're going to submit to the authority of someone or something else. Now hear me very carefully. While we must respect and obey civil authority, we must not disobey God in the process. We should be willing to risk our pride, our acceptance, and our status in this world in order to proudly and boldly and courageously speak the truth about Jesus. You know, there has been legislation introduced into this country. It's still out there. It's going to be reintroduced, and I would fully expect it to be reintroduced in these next two years, that would make a preacher preaching against homosexuality a hate crime punishable by civil means. So what is a preacher to do? Well, a preacher is to preach the truth of God regardless of the consequences. The people of God are to speak the truth of God regardless of the consequences. And if the church of God has their pastors arrested because they have preached against biblical truth, perhaps this will awaken our country to finally take a stand on our Christian principles and say, enough is enough. This has gone too far. We must recapture our heritage and be truthful to our true identity. Well, again, this isn't what the religious leaders are expecting to hear. Them basically doubling down on their insistence to continue doing what they're doing. So number five in this response goes back to the religious leaders, and here we see the threats. Verses 21 through 22. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. Notice that the once unreligious, unsaved people who saw the miracle and heard the message were now glorifying God, which means not everybody out there is going to be against us. There are some people out there who are going to willingly and joyfully receive the gospel message. Verse 22, for the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had performed. So hoping the threat would be enough the religious leaders let Peter and John go. And now we see the response of the community of believers, this group of 5,000 men now, and probably much of their family, as Peter and John go back and give a report about what had just happened. Verse 23, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, this last part of our outline, we're going to go through very quickly. And this response that we're going to see, I've titled as the prayer, but this prayer is preceded by this proclamation that describes the sovereignty, the glory, the authority of God himself. Read with me verses 24 all the way through 28. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy 
holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Basically what they have said is that all the way from the beginning of Israel's history, the world has stood against you and they have stood against your people. Here in the ministry of Jesus, they have stood against Him and they are standing against His people. But you, O God, are victorious. You, O God, will not be thwarted. They stand against you and yet you do whatever your hand and your purpose has destined to occur. We serve a sovereign God whose kingdom cannot be stopped. And you and I belong to that kingdom and we should be empowered in the victory that is ours because of who He is and our union with Him. Now we find in, in this in this proclamation, the specific prayer that is based upon God's authority, His power, and His name. And look at what it is they pray for. They pray for greater boldness. They stood before the most powerful group of people in their world, and they said, we are not going to stop. We're going to continue to do what God has called us to do. God, we pray that You will give to us greater boldness. Well, How much greater can their boldness be? They're going to find out, aren't they? Verses 29 through 31. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, there's really a couple of sermons in this narrative, and for the sake of time and continuity, I'm not going to get into that. But they basically said, God, you've heard what they've said. And we're going to continue to do what we do. Continue to extend your hand to heal. Spiritual healing. Physical healing through our ministry so that signs and wonders may take place. To give validity to our message that we are going to go to the remotest parts of the world to the world and preached. So that we may boldly and proudly preach the name of Jesus. And in a sign of affirmation, the place shook. And I believe that the people who were filled with the Holy Spirit were those who had not yet been filled based upon their previous salvation experience earlier in that narrative episode. And there's a few other instances in the book of Acts where the filling of the Holy Spirit was delayed with a very specific purpose in mind. This is not the apostles being filled with a greater amount of the Holy Spirit. It's God simply filling these new believers with His presence. Now let me ask you these questions. What about God has changed since Acts chapter 4? What about the filling of the Holy Spirit has changed since Acts chapter 4? What is our response based upon what it is we've just examined? Let me ask you these questions. What is it that you individually and we corporately are attempting that could not be accomplished without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? What are you and I trusting God to do that really doesn't require God to do? What is it, is there anything out there that we're doing right now that could not be done without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? 
Are we willing to step beyond our comfort zone and attempt things for God that we know cannot be accomplished by relying on our own abilities? I heard Ken say this not long ago. I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable. Are we willing to be uncomfortable and trusting God to do what can only be explained by Him? Do we have the courage to speak for God? Do we have courage to stand in His name? Do we have courage to stand against any opposition based upon the authority that Christ has given to us? Remember, Jesus said, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We are His church. We belong to Him. The power of this world cannot stop the kingdom of God, and we will either willingly, voluntarily, excitedly, with great courage and faith, pursue the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes in our lives individually and in the life of this church corporately, or we will not. There is no middle ground. It's a yes or a no. We want to say maybe. We want to say wait. Not the right time. It's a yes or a no. What will we do? Would you pray with me? Father, I'm grieved in my spirit over my own apathy. Your church in this country is dying a slow, agonizing death because it refuses to stand in your name upon the authority that you've given to us to bring truth into this hostile world. And I pray, Father, that we individually and corporately would declare enough is enough. That we would be willing to rid ourselves of any sin that interferes with nothing but a total commitment to you. That we would be willing to be uncomfortable for the sake and the progress of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would grow a church here and in our country and around our world that is strong in the promises that you have made and the provision that you have given. Willing to count the cost. Willing to risk it all for the sake of the gospel. Father, would you remind us that you gave to us your one and only Son who gave up his rightful place in glory and took the form of a man, a lowly bondservant who submitted himself to the ways of wicked and sinful men so that our rescue could be secured through his death. Would you make us willing to do whatever it requires to live this life for you that you are worthy of and deserving of and our world needs to see? Father, we know that following in faith is often filled with difficulty and hardship. But how we give you thanks in advance that you will not leave us, you will not forsake us, that we will never walk this journey alone and without you but that you will be with us every step of the way as we cling to you, as we commit to you, as we lose our very lives 
to live for you. We give you thanks for the promises that are in Christ. May we be faithful men and women who are willing to follow. We pray in Jesus' name.